0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. In uh, Mark 2, uh, verses 13 through 17, um, yes, we are back to our slow roll through <laughs> the, the gospel of Mark. Uh, slow and steady wins the race at this point. Um and this morning we're going to see an example of someone who after meeting Jesus immediately prioritizes reaching out to his immediate everyone that he knows all of his acquaintances all of his family to tell them about how he met Jesus um show of hands, how many of you have ever done anything, like, door-to-door? Not necessarily just, like, in church, but just in general. Like, how have you had to go, like, door-to-door to to go do something? A a good number of us, right? So, um, I know in the past, Wood Street Chapel has done some door-to-door stuff where, like, we've done invites, inviting, like, the entire city of Fortuna to an Easter service. And so, like, on a Saturday... I remember as a kid getting on my BMX bike with like a paperboy sack full of invites and just like hitting the outskirts like I was on a bike so they sent me like really far away (laughs) and you are just like hitting all of these different um, different homes and it was Specifically, the invite, I remember, had an, a rubber band that you would, like, put over the doorknob so that when the person came, they would, like, see it, and, and that was kind of how we did it. And so I've done that before. I've I've done, like, door-to-door where um, we used to deliver phone books uh, for a while, like, when people still use the phone book, and, <laughs> and uh, we would—thankfully, we didn't do those on a bike because that would have been really hard. Um, that, that was out of the back of a truck, and so, like, I would go and, you know— have a bunch, and we go hand them out to these different neighbors, neighborhoods, and that, again, was, like, all of Fortuna that we would do that in. So, you know, okay, so a good group of us ha- have been involved in some form of door-to-door something or other, and how many of you maybe got a little nervous when you were doing it? <laughs> and so, you know, there's these questions that you start asking, like, what, what if the person's home? Like, what if somebody sees me? Or, uh, I mean, the worst of all of them, right, is what if I have to talk to someone? (laughs) Like, what if I actually have to invite the person to church? Like, how terrible would that be? And it's funny because, you know, we've all been there, right? But if I think back to when I was doing those types of things personally, I think there has been a fundamental shift in society in general in terms of how people handle somebody coming to their door, and I I just really hadn't put a lot of thought into it until I was preparing for this this morning. When I was a kid, and when the door would ring, or like, you know, we had a we had a ridiculous uh, bell on our door that was like so startling. Um, It wasn't like just a nice little ding dong. It was this thing that people would turn, and it was. I can't really explain it other than it felt like a school bell was going off like right next to your head. Um, So, but even still, as a kid, when the bell would ring, when somebody would knock on the door, there was this level of excitement of, hey, I want to go see who's at the door. And you'd like run and you'd go answer the door. And what I can say in general, not so much, well, I mean, maybe to a certain extent in my own home, when the door rings, it's don't you go answer that door. (laughs) And so to a certain extent, there's, you know, in in my house, there's a matter of we need to make sure you know who that person is, right? I have two kids that are, you know, young, and so I want to make sure that they're not just inviting a random stranger into the house. But then you also have those situations where it's like, I just don't want to deal with that person, so don't answer the door, right? You know, there's always those times, you know... I, there's been, you know, a couple of instances where, you know, I've gone to, you know, go to somebody's door, and you knock, and you hear this. And that's it. And nobody comes to the door, and you knock again, and, and then it's silent. It's like, I know you're there. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not like you were super quiet about it. Or maybe you'll hear them whispering, Who is it? <laughs> You know, the, the mom's asking the kid who's like looking out the door, "It's the preacher." And what does he want? <laughs> Just answer the door. But we're we're in that spot, right? Where it's it's maybe we're we're kind of more isolationist. Let's maybe use that term. In general, our, our society has maybe come, become a little bit more isolationist, and. If we said that we, as a church, wanted to reach all of Humboldt County for Christ, that 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 was the mission that was placed on on the hearts of Wood Street Chapel, right, we could probably put together some, like, door-to-door campaign that said, okay, you know, over the next three months, we're going to blanket all of Humboldt County and, you know, invite them to church. We're going to, you know, knock on every single door and let them know that God loves them and, you know, offer to pray with them. We could do that. Um, but are there better ways to do this? Probably. What if, what if the family that lives in Hydesville reaches out to the community of Hydesville, sharing with them the love of Christ? And then what if the community that lives in Lolita reaches out to the community of Lolita, sharing the love of Christ with them? And then what if the families that live in Hydesville, or Fortuna rather, are, are sharing the love of God with the people that they uh, come in contact with in Fortuna and, and Eureka and, you know, Rio del Scotia, the, the list goes on, right? And it, wouldn't that be more effective, because now we have people that maybe have relationship. We have people that where it's, hey, I know who the, who you are. I, I know, I, I have life experience with you. And now you're, you're telling me about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And all of a sudden that becomes maybe potentially much more effective. Now, please understand that this isn't saying, well, we shouldn't do you know, you shouldn't step out of your own locale to share the love of Christ with somebody else. Like, I'm not preaching against all of, like, international missions, okay? Yes, there God uses that. God uses the, the times where we reach out door to door to people that we don't know. But what if... We are being used in these different places where we live, where we find ourselves. God is using us to reach out to those specific communities to further the kingdom of God. I mean, when we've gone to like church planting conferences or when we've gone to, you know, different outreach um, instruction. So often the, the church planting process is focused on figure out who the influential people are in that community and, and, and have them share the, the word of Christ. It's not necessarily you as the church planter showing up with this great idea. Same for a missions outreach. If you're going into a, a different place, it's a different culture, it's completely different from anything that you have ever known. Why would you be the one presenting the gospel? Why don't you get someone who, who looks like them, who speaks their language, who, who knows their customs and their practices, have them present that. And how much more effective would that be? And so instead of having this group of people going down the streets, talking to people that they don't know, kind of like an invasion, right? I mean, it kind of can start feeling that way. What if the interaction is with a person that they have everyday experience with, and the invasion becomes, this is very pastoral of me, an invitation, it's always nice when you get to have some form of alliteration, right, Greg? Uh, <laughs> so this invasion becomes an invitation where it's, hey, come come with me. Come, come alongside me. Come into my world. And they say, but, but Matt, my, my home isn't ready for people to come into my world. <laughs> I haven't cleaned my house yet. I don't have time for people to come into my world. I am too busy with everything else that's going on. I don't know what I would say if people tried to come into my world. What, what am I supposed to say? Like, here's my pastor's phone number. Like, here, talk to him. Like, what am I supposed to do? Or maybe this is potentially one that we all have or struggle with. I need to get my life more together before I can bring other people into my world to share Jesus with them. Can I just tell you that if we wait until everyone has their act together to share the gospel with those around us, we're going to be waiting a long time. (laughs) It is never going to happen. Did And We're not trying to put ourselves forward as righteous. We're we're putting God forward as righteous. We're saying Jesus is the way. I am not the gospel. Thank you very much. (laughs) And it can actually be an awesome testimony for people to see that God uses people that don't have all of their stuff together. I mean... How encouraging is that to see, man, that person is a hot mess, and yet God still uses them on a regular basis. And some of us are saying, I am that hot mess <laughs> that God uses on a regular basis. There's a, a woman that I had heard about a, a few years back, and, and I think this, her testimony takes place mostly in the late 90s. Her name's uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Um, she was raised and educated in liberal Catholic settings. Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBTQ advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University, served in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGBTQ plus student group, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBTQ aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, while Rosario was researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me, her, she wrote an article against the ministry called the Promise Keepers. And the Promise Keepers was a uh, ministry that was created uh, to basically build up the role of a Christian man in his family. Recognizing that a, a Christian man had a legacy to uh, lead his family towards Christ. And so Rosaria Butterfield writes this article attacking promise keepers, obviously, because it is completely counter to everything that, that she knows and that she believes is right. And what did the 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 Christian write how did they respond? exactly how you would expect that they would respond. Not how we hoped we would respond, but exactly what we would expect. Immediately, Rosaria Butterfield begins to receive death threats from the Christian community. (laughs) She begins to be threatened. She has mountains of hate mail sent to her about how she is going to hell because of the choices that she is making. Doing nothing but enforcing her already assumed Assumptions of who God is, what God thinks of her, and what the people who follow God are like. The amount uh, of hate mail that she receives from the Christian community only serves to fuel her belief that the Christian right is exactly what she thinks it is. All of this changes when Rosario receives a call from a man named Ken Smith. Who is a pastor. And in his phone call, he apologizes for the reactions and for the attacks that she has received, acknowledging that a large amount of her criticism towards the Christian right is actually accurate and deserved, and then doesn't invite her to church, doesn't say, Hey, you need to know Jesus. He says, Why don't you come over to my house? And have dinner with my wife and I. Thinking that she has just found a free source of research for her uh, her continued studies. She comes to dinner with her guard up. But during this time, Ken and his wife never once try to convince her that she's wrong. Never once try to evangelize for her. They, they never once invite her to church. They never once condemn her. her her or the choices that she has made, they simply welcome her into their home, serve her, and say, it was amazing having you here, and we'd like to have you here next week as well. Over the next two years, Rosaria never once steps foot into a church, never once... It praise the, the sinner's prayer, but she does read the Bible. She has been reading large chunks of Scripture because it's it's the research, it's the opposition research that she has been re- reading for all of this time. And all of a sudden she starts to understand that there is maybe more to being a follower of Christ than the hate mail that she received. And maybe there's maybe God's love for her is more like something that came from Ken Smith. So two years after this interaction has taken place, two years after, week after week after week of, of inviting Rosaria to dinner, she shows up at Ken's church, making a decision to follow Christ, not because Ken had, had the, the right combination of words, not because he, he finally wore her down, but because he loved her. He he truly loved her through radical hospitality. Through the, the conviction of the word of God, partnered with the ministry of a couple who wanted to show what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Rosaria g- lost everything after making her decision to follow Christ. Her entire world fell apart. Every, her, the, all of her, her acquaintances, all of her, her friends that she thought were friends, all of her, her renown as someone in the left community was, was completely destroyed. The only thing that she had was eternal life. But that was enough. She's now married to a pastor writing Christian books about her life experience. She's a, a speaker at conferences at large Christian gatherings sharing what it means to be a recipient of radical hospitality. So even though you are in the, the deepest, darkest places with your scene, even though you are antagonistic to... Everything that we stand for, we love you and we want God's best for you. That's the response that we're supposed to have. Regardless of where you are, we still want God's best for you. So as we look at our text this morning, this experience that we see in this testimony really isn't all that different from what we see in Mark 2. We see in the life of of Rosaria that that exact same response that takes place in the life of Levi. When you are changed by Jesus, you want to see Jesus change others around you. When Jesus invites you to his table, you want to invite others to yours. Mark 2, 13 through 17, it says, he went out again, he being Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Jesus went out again by the sea. So that seems pretty innocuous, right? It's just setting the scene. But let's focus for a minute on who did Jesus call? Who was with Jesus? Peter, Peter's brother, James, John, right? What did they do? They were fishermen. Where was he at? By the sea. Jesus was was doing ministry where people, where there was relationship, where they were working, where where they, they knew the people there. And then Jesus goes from that place and he goes to Levi's tax booth and then eventually to Levi's home. Levi's Tax Booth is where Levi works, right? So let's, let's think about tax collectors for just a minute. We all probably have this general idea. Um, let's use Canada as an example. Canada invades and takes over the United States of America. And now that Canada has taken over the United States of America, they have said, hey, we need to levy taxes against the United States of America. We're not going to send our people to do it. We want... This group of people who are United States citizens to collect taxes for Canada, and they'll probably take a little bit off the top for themselves as well. Probably wouldn't be treated all that popularly, right? That's exactly what is happening here. We have people that are are part of the, the Jewish nation that are collecting taxes on behalf of Rome. And they're notorious for taking taxes or taking money off the top for themselves, cheating their own people. Because of where they're at in this physical location, this is something that I hadn't really considered either. It's probably pretty likely that Levi collected taxes from the disciples. Seems like a safe bet. And so we have these disciples following Jesus, and they, they see Jesus walking up to the, the tax booth, and they're probably, oh, he's going to get it. Be smite with the word of the Lord, right? Like, this is going to be great. And what does Jesus do? Follow me. Come follow me. Jesus invited questionable people to follow him who would intentionally upset the existing religious dynamic that was in place. I mean, over and over and over, we've seen Jesus take people that were on the, the outskirts and the margins. I mean, he was taking the lepers, right? He was taking the paralytics. He was taking now the tax collectors, and he was inviting them, saying, there is, there is new life for you. I mean, if we think about even the, the nativity, we have the, the shepherds. And we have, you know, all of these different people that are, that are on the outskirts, that are out in the fields. And they are now coming and saying, there, there is something for you here. Jesus comes to Levi. And, and Levi's, Levi's in a pretty comfortable spot. He's got money. He's got a, a pretty secure job. But he goes up to where Levi is. He says, follow me. He goes up to Levi's tax booth and he says, follow me. Notice that it wasn't a, a, a prayer meeting where Levi got invited to follow. It wasn't Levi, you know, at his Bible study saying, come follow me. It was Levi in the midst of him cheating his own people that he says, come follow me. I mean, that's pretty much the the worst mud puddle you can be in, right? Like, follow me. Not love me. Not accept me. Not fear me. Not not obey everything that I say. Not pray to me. Just follow me. I mean, Christian discipleship is following Jesus, like. I mean, pure and simple, if we we boil it down, it is following Jesus where Jesus is moving. It's definitely not just adhering to some sets of beliefs that may or may not be right. I mean, when we look back at the testimony from Rosaria, the response that came to this woman after she wrote her article, those responses were from people who were adhering to a system of belief that did not have a relationship with God. Guarantee it. Because if they had a relationship with Jesus, that would have never been the response If I show up and say, I'm a Christian, and the question is why, because I believe in God and stuff, that's not a good enough answer. I mean, the Bible says, I mean, demons believe in God. Are you following him? So Jesus comes to Levi and he says, follow me. And it says, and he rose and followed him. Now, now we don't really know if there is more to this conversation, but sometimes I like to just think that there wasn't. How great would it be if, if they're just walking up and Jesus is like, hey, follow me. And Jesus, Levi's just like, okay. <laughs> and he just gets up and starts walking. How, how amazing would that be? He gets up and immediately walks away from everything that he knows. He walks away from his job, from his security, from his livelihood, and he questions none of it. He just gets up and he says, sure, I'm in. The only way that you will leave what you treasure what you find most important in your life. The only way that you will step away from those things is if you find something more important. If you have the choice of plain oatmeal or a gourmet breakfast prepared from, by a five-star chef in the morning, what are you going to pick? You're going if one of you chooses oatmeal, I'm going to be really concerned. But uh, it, most of you, hopefully, will pick the, the gourmet breakfast prepared by the, the five-star chef, right? That That's what you're going to pick, but you're not going to step away from the oatmeal for more oatmeal. You are not going to leave the thing that you treasure unless you find something better. And what we see in Levi's reaction is... I'm giving up everything. I'm giving up my security, everything that I know, everything that I hold dear, because this is more important. And the question is, is that the case for us today? Are we giving up the thing that we find that we thought was important for the, the thing that is even more important? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So what does Levi do? He he says, hey, follow me. And Levi gets up. He leaves his tax tax booth and he follows Jesus. And as he follows Jesus, what is his next response? Let's throw a party. Really? We we see in the Gospel of Luke where it kind of parallels this section that Levi throws a huge party. And he makes Jesus the center of it. And you might be tempted to ask, okay, well, who cares? Like, what's, what's the point here? Levi threw a dinner and, and people came. But what do we know? I think this may, may be my pastoral tagline there are no wasted pages in the Bible, <laughs> it's what we know. So this is, this isn't just like, oh yeah, we, we forgot to edit out that part. It's there for a reason. And so the reason must be that this is important, that the response that we have after being follow, after choosing to follow Christ is important. What we see here is that hospitality matters. In fact, hospitality is the key to sharing the gospel after we've made a decision to follow Christ. When a sinner is changed by Jesus, he should want to gather other sinners in order for them to be changed by Jesus too. Levi gets changed by Jesus, and in his estimation, the best thing that he can do is immediately throw a party, bringing all of his unsaved friends to see, hey, look at this guy who changed my life. He can change yours too, and I want him to because I love you, and I want God's best for you. And so we we see over and over that the disciples open their homes and their hearts to minister to the sinners that are in proximity to them. So we saw it with Simon right? Simon receives Christ. What's the first thing that he does? He, he says, hey, come to, to go see my mom. My mom's sick. And then what happens? The entire city comes and hangs out at Peter's house. <laughs> we see it with Levi. And so and we see this over and over where their disciples are, are called, they're changed by Jesus and say, now I want other, other people to be changed by Jesus too. We see it with the woman at the well, right? We haven't gotten to that part of the scripture yet. But we see with the woman at the well, she's, th- this man told me every wrong thing I've ever done. He knows everything about me and he's changed me. And I want him to do the same for you too. And it seems so simple but but it is also foundational sure door to door ministry and missions overseas those are ways to spread the gospel and we see that through the, the whole book of acts but God also uses us right where we're at you don't have to get on a plane to share the gospel of Christ you can do that with the person that is right next to you in your job so and then we have the we have jesus reaction we have or jesus call to levi we have levi's reaction to that call and then in the last part of the scripture in 16 and 17 we have the pharisees reaction to what levi has done and the first question that i would have levi has thrown this party why are the pharisees there did you ever think of that like why did they come to the party like, who invited them? <laughs> they, they have to be party crashing. Like, there's no way. It's not like Levi would have written an invitation to the Pharisees in that area and be like, Hey, come over to my house. And if he, they sent, if he did write that invitation, what Pharisee in the right mind is like, Sure, we'll come. We'd love to. We'll bring the housewarming gift. They're not enjoying the party they're criticizing it by this may be i don't think this is going to be controversial we'll see by associating with sinners jesus tarnished his reputation but he never compromised his character does that make sense he he totally ruined his image of, of what people thought of when they saw him. They, they saw that he was interacting with people that he had really no business interacting with, that, that anybody who was in the, the religious hierarchy should not be interacting with. And yet, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of his associations with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and every, every person that was on the outskirts, he never once compromised his character. His reputation was damaged, but he never sinned. His character was intact. Jesus wasn't concerned about what the Pharisees thought about him. What can we get from that? Maybe we need to worry less about what people think of us and focus more on what the actual outcome and maybe have more of an eternal focus on on the, the people that were trying to reach for Christ so the the religious religious leaders of that time they were eager to enter into the house. They were eager to, to interact with Jesus when he was preaching, but they weren't really willing to sit at the table of relationship. They weren't really willing to, to sit down and do life with these people that they were supposed to be ministering to. They were totally fine telling how terrible these people were, how, the, the ways that they had made mistakes, what they had done wrong, but they weren't really willing to sit down and, and have a meal and say, "What is? how can I help you? How can I be with you? How can I share the love of God with you? If I look at my life, am I on the back wall talking about the scandal or am I sitting at the table? I mean, we have the, the parable of the workers, right? Where we have all of these workers that are starting at different times of the day. We have a worker who's, who started at the, the the break of dawn. And then we have that worker who starts an hour before sundown. And the, it comes time to pay. And first they, they pay the, the man who started last. And, and he gets his full wage for the day. And, and the people in the back are like, oh man, today is going to be a great payday. And it comes to them and they get paid the exact same amount. And they're like... What's going on? We work so much more. Aren't we worth more than the one who just worked that that one hour? The Pharisees are the same way. These sinners at the beginning of the line, they're not on the same playing field that we are. But Jesus says they are. The only one who comes to this table comes through grace. That is, that is the literal scandal of grace, is that the the rich man, the, the Pharisee, who has been working it since the beginning of the day, is at the same level as the one who comes at the very end because God says so. And so what we see are these, these religious leaders in their attempt to insulate themselves, isolate themselves from the the blatant sin that exists in these people's lives, they become an even worse type of sinner. Because what happens when you start distancing yourself from those that that are hurting? What happens when you start distancing yourself from those that are broken? When you start sending death threats to people that, that disagree with your way of thinking? What happens when that happens is you're distancing yourself from Jesus. Jesus never once expected the sick to become well themselves. That's what he's saying at the end of this this verse here. But he also didn't intend on them staying sick. And so he came to bring life, life abundantly. And so this morning as we come to the communion table, as we come to this time of receiving what God has done, what, what Jesus has done on the cross, we come once again to this concept, this, this idea, this term of grace, this scandal of grace, to use that the, the term from our, our worship song this morning. this idea that is so backwards in our thinking that the God of the universe would send his one and only son, give up his one and only son to die on a cross so that the sick could become well, so that the sinner could become clean, so that there would be redemption It's so beyond anything that we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And yet, it's what happened. You start passing out, Deb. So as we come to the communion table this morning, I don't I don't have any specific program that we have to look at that says, okay, you need to have this many people over to your house, you know, this many times per week. That, that's not what this is about. What this is about is is each of us looking at the world that, that we find ourselves in. And each of us find ourselves in a different world, right? And what I mean by that is we all work in different places. We all live in different neighborhoods. We all have different families. We all have different friendships. We have different interactions. We have different people that we get in arguments with. We have different people that are actively attacking us for what we believe, And so the, the question that that we have to consider as we come to the table today, as we come to this communion table, is where is God calling us to demonstrate his love in each of those different areas? How is God calling me to... to Radical hospitality. How is God calling me to demonstrate his love in ways that are beyond anything that, that, that is within my comfort zone? Because we're coming to this table recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to address the sin in my life and to allow me to be with him for all of eternity. That's good news. the appropriate and correct response to that good news is to share it with other people. Mark 14, through 25, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, for this is my body. And he took a cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until the day when I drink it anew, drink it in a new way in God's kingdom. Here we have Jesus taking the ordinary in an ordinary loaf of bread, and an ordinary cup, and he's making it extraordinary just as he takes our lives, the ordinary mess of a life that you and I live, and he makes it extraordinary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that amazing and undeserved transaction where the ordinary becomes extraordinary, not through anything that we have done, But through the gift of your grace. God, what what can we say? What can we say but thank you? Thank you for the cross, thank you for the, the blood that was shed. And God, as we we come to this time of remembrance, this time of of recognition of, of the sacrifice given, Lord, make it real to us and stir within us the desire, the hunger to share what has been done with those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.